Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to this, one of our end-of-the-year editions of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. Part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 272, guest host Kathy Pickens, an award-winning mystery and true crime writer, interviews regular host Landis Wade, that's me, about my historical mystery novel, Deadly Decorations, which releases March 1, 2022, in ebook and April 5th, 2022, in print. The novel focuses on an unlikely trio of retirees who try to solve the 250 year old mystery of the controversial First American Declaration of Independence, actions which, if successful, would change U.S. history. That is, if they don't die trying. Fry Galliard, American historian and author of A Hard Rain, American 1960s, says this is a novel rooted in history and mystery and imagination, a crackling good book. Clyde Edgerton, author of Walking Across Egypt and Rainy, calls it delicious, funny, suspenseful. And Kathy Pickens, our guest host, had this to say, humor, a good puzzle, a peek inside, some artful legal maneuvering, engaging characters, all the absolutely perfect ingredients for a mystery. Now, I really appreciate those reviews and also appreciate the other kind of reviews that will appear in the novel by Tracy Clark, Danny Rumine Powell, Scott Seifert, George Hovis, Heather Bell Adams, and Webb Hubble. Finally, like any other author who appears on Charlotte Reese Podcast, I don't know what questions the host will ask me. <laughs> and that's only fair that I experience what other authors experience who come on the show. It should be fun. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, Landis. Welcome to your very own show. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be on my show and glad to have you being my guest host today. The hot the hot seat of your very own show. Yeah, it's odd being in this side. You know, I don't have any control of what's going to happen now, right? Wait, you mean I wasn't supposed to read this whole list of questions that you sent me beforehand? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Don't read those questions that we practiced, you know, before we started. <laughs> Landis, as you read my quote um, that uh, blurbs your book, and I was I was quite honored to be able to do that because, um, as you know, I love a good murder mystery novel, and you have passions about other things in this book that you've written, but for me, it is just a jolly good puzzle mystery, and that's the highest compliment that I can um give to a book. I love the characters in this book. Um, and I, 
I like that you've made Charlotte a character in the book, which is the, in part, the history part of it, but there's so much more to it. Where did these people come from? I mean, you have <laughs> um, Jaeger. Um, the opening scenes of the book where we get to meet them are really um, funny, um, which I also like. Um, and uh, you just have this cast of characters. Where did they come from? Well, well, thank you for that question. First of all, let me just say I really appreciate those those kind words. And also, listeners, um, Kathy did have a little bit to do with this because she looked over an early piece of, of the manuscript and helped me. As she said, I was focused on some other things too, but helped me stay focused on the the mystery uh, side of it and and hitting some of those points that you need to hit, you know, in a mystery. But but Kathy, you know, like all characters um, that come to an author's imagination. Some of them, you know where they come from. Some of them, you don't. Um, Craig Travail, who's the protagonist, uh, he's the lawyer. Um, I kind of knew where he would come from because uh, I experienced some of what Craig Travail <laughs> experienced in, in his life. He was turning 65 as the book opens. He's been practicing in a big law firm for, for many, many years. He's a successful partner, but he's just not he's just not into it much anymore and things aren't going well for him. And the big firm has kind of outrun all the traditions that he remembers when he was a young lawyer. And he's just, he's just not in a very good place. So, uh, and he was having to move into retirement. So I I wanted to explore that with him. So I knew I had him. Um, And then I, I, I had this idea of, you know, I wanted to have a strong female character in the book and that's Harriet Josephine Keaton. Uh, She's a few years older than, uh, than Craig Travail, and she lives at the Independence Retirement Community. But then Jaeger just kind of <laughs> dropped out of nowhere. I mean, he, he, Chuck it seems Ye- appropriate for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chuck Jaeger Alexander, who who was named uh, Chuck Jaeger because uh, he was born the same day that Chuck Jaeger the uh, it broke the sound barrier. He was a test pilot uh, in the forties, and uh, his his mother said he was louder than uh, Chuck Jaeger was. So he just fortuitously dropped into my lap and he added the humor element that I needed for the novel because I wanted to set it in a retirement community. And he also added something which was he isn't the kind of person you would necessarily find in this particular retirement community. He sort of finds his way there by accident because he comes here to take care of his mother who's aging while she's uh, got cancer. She dies. He inherits her house, inherits her pension. He's kind of been moving all around in his life and uh, he's kind of a bit of a scruff. You know, he's got a long beard and he doesn't wear his jeans and boots and doesn't really care much about what people think of him. And he's always interested in solving the next historical conspiracy. And so with those three together, I thought that would be kind of a nice mix, uh, a depressed lawyer, (laughs) a a female, a little bit older, who's got her act together. uh, And then Jaeger, who uh, my sister, when she did some early reading of the book and was giving me feedback, she said, now I want you to change this and fix this, but don't change a thing about Jaeger. Don't you dare. (laughs) Thumbs up to your sister's judgment on that. Good, good. Well, and and I have to say, I thought that you you call him a depressed lawyer, but I find that Craig Tavrail is in a place that a a lot of us come at a certain time in our lives 
where we loved what we were doing, but it's time, as you say, for the next act. And um, that that transition you explore really well. Um, mm-hmm. It's not always an easy one. And fortunately for most of us, it's not as dramatic as Travail's is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have to have some conflict right in the beginning of the book, right? He has to, he has yeah. to tackle his managing partner and get kicked out of the law firm. And you know, a, a scene that you and I debated back and forth, should we really tackle him or should he just really dream that he's... Just a dream sequence. It, yeah. And then finally we just said, nah, just, let's just tackle him. You know? Just go for it. Yeah. None of this Dallas dream sequence yeah, stuff. Yeah. This. But you're right. you're right. I mean, um, I mean, depressed might be too strong a word. He, he was he was somewhat depressed, but also I think um, when we get to where we've done something for thirty five or forty years, and we get to be competent at it, it doesn't sometimes have the same challenges that that it's always had before. And you know, I did I went through that in my law practice late in my fifties and thinking, do I want to keep you know helping banks not spend a little bit more money, you know, in a lawsuit <laughs> or do I want to do something creative? And that's how I kind of got into the podcasting and writing and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think Craig Travail was sort of like, I don't, uh, Craig Travail, a little bit like my father, my father practiced law to he was about 86 until they could know, wow. until they made him leave, you know? And, and, but he always said to me, said, Landis, I, I just don't know what I'll do if I don't practice. And that's why I came up with that line early in the book uh, that Craig Travail said he was having dinner or he's having a beer with one of his artist friends who, who, who at one time been a lawyer and he, he, he used the line from hotel California. He said, lawyers, you know, they better get out when they're 65. Cause at that point it becomes like the hotel California. They can check in, but they can't ever check out. You know? <laughs> and yeah, and that's, I, I've seen that. True. I've seen that. You know? and it's true in a lot of other things too. I decided right. when I was the person going, well, we've always done it this way, or we tried that before and it didn't work. Then it was time for me to leave. <laughs> like, I'd already been there too long. Yeah. So there, I think there's a, t- there's a time limit. I think it's, I think you've touched on something though that is both important in this book, both in the book itself and behind the scenes in the writing of the book and what you've done since you left the practice of law. And that is, what do you do next? And the answer for a lot of people, um, healthily so, is something creative, um, something completely unrelated um, in theory, to what they've done before. And that shows up here in brilliant ways because one of the other things I like about this book so much is the trial scenes. Were those hard to write or easy to write? I mean, when you're writing about something you know well, some sometimes it seems like it should be easy, and then you think, hmm, how did that go for you? Those were the scenes that flew off my fingertips. Really? Yeah. And, and the reason was it was so, so much fun to write them and be in control, control of the narrative. Complete control. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the one thing I told somebody, I said, you know, I, I went from experiencing conflict on a daily basis to writing about it, but also being in control of it. And there's a huge difference, you know? So when you can go into the courtroom and you can make it turn out however you want it to turn <laughs> out, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Plus, you know, being able to add a little bit of humor, being able to add those things that, uh, you know, you take the regular courtroom experience and you notch it up a bit and you throw in a quirky judge or a quirky, you know, lawyer or a quirky witness. Cause I had a lot of those in the book that the witnesses came from the independence retirement community and they all, yeah. 
had nicknames and different views on life and so and agendas but, and agendas <laughs> and so so yeah but to answer your question um th- those were um not as hard to write as some of the other scenes because uh, I had been there I had done that I knew what it was like to question witness what I had to keep in mind was some of the things I've been continuing to learn over time in, the, in my writing and that is you know be be direct, be, be an you know, active voice, be, you know, don't clutter the scene up too much. Don't try to do too much at one time. And so I had to learn how to break it up, but writing the rough crappy draft, those were easy, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that part. Yeah. Well, the fun came through, but also yeah. the, the artistry, you know, that mm-hmm. you'd been there and done this. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things, well, readers like that in any novel, but I think especially in a mystery novel, we want that glimpse behind the scenes and we want that that sense of verisimilitude that this person's been there and knows what they're talking about. And you deliver, absolutely right. deliver. Thank, thank you. I, mean, I just add to that. So there's a, a bit part character called Tommy Doolittle and Tommy got his nickname because he works at the end and does as little as possible as, as he can. He gets paid more of a year for doing it. And Yeager says he's thinking about writing a how-to book. Well, Tommy <laughs> Doolittle is put on the stand and, you know, our, our evildoer, uh, our antagonist is really having his, having his way with him because Tommy, yeah, he didn't always show up to work on time. So he's in pre- supposedly impeaching his character because, you know, he's not, at work on time or, and sometimes he slept on the job and he had like three forms where he'd been caught sleeping on the job, to which Tommy <laughs> Doolittle said in the trial, but I wasn't sleeping when I heard Sue Ellen say she was going to get his power of attorney and take his money. <laughs> you know, gazing. You know, gazing. That's right. and, and, you know, I've seen that happen in real life where people ask just, just one too many questions, just right? One too many. <laughs> yeah. So, but this time you were completely in control of the answer. Too. Exactly. I knew how it would work. Yeah. So, sweet. Very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, in this um, book, it's clear in the conversations we've had about it. It was clear in reading it as it was developed. Um, it's clear in the gorgeous cover that you have yeah. for it um, that the history part is really what charged you up about this Mm -hmm. Um, anybody who lives in charlotte and pays half an ounce of attention will still have missed so many things about the central element of this book and that is the mecklenburg declaration of independence Mm -hmm. Um, what got you excited about that i'm i'm new to charlotte 40 years ago so when when I, I first learned about it, I was like, are you kidding? And so I read everything, not nearly as much, obviously, as you have, and um, and thrilled with the statue of Captain Jack as right. he rides off right. <laughs> on right. his horse that went up in front of CPCC a few years ago. What got you charged up about this? Yeah, so just to tie what you just said, I grew up in Charlotte, and I went to school here, and they, like I say in the book, they don't teach the mech deck in school, right? It's not part of the history, the North Carolina history curriculum. So I didn't know much about it either. And and I grew up here. And so I'm actually um, writing something else. It's a mystery, a set in a retirement community. But then I interview Scott Seifert for my podcast. And Scott wrote the nonfiction book. And I give him a lot of credit in this book for, you know, what he, 
for his book, Helping Guide Me. Hell, he did all the research <laughs> for me, you know, and, and I got to interview him too. So it's, it's, it's a novelist dream. Yeah. Right? When I looked up and said, nobody's written this book yet. I can't believe it. Somebody's already done all the research. Here's the research file. <laughs> Here's the research file. So that, so that really got me energized. And I went back to those 15 or 20,000 words I had. And I said, okay, we're going to change this. You know, we're going to still going to be a retirement community, but we're going to focus on the mech deck as sort of the primary plot line and keep this other thing. And I'd already been working on a, on a mystery that involved a will. And so I just kind of melded them together, you know? Okay. And so, so it it's a perfect, I think, example of, you know, when you're struggling as an author to find, you know, what you're going to write about for that next novel as I'm thinking about my next book. Um, and something comes along and you get, wow, that's, that's really cool. You know, I want to figure out how to put that in my book. And then, you, then I started reading more and studying more. And I thought, golly, there are about eight conspiracies in this thing. Which one do I choose, you know, to, to, to focus on? And I could have had any, any number of jumping off points. And I tried to keep uh, the novel true to fact as I could. And just so, for those of you listening, you had never heard of the Mac deck, you know, you are under that rock or whatever, or you're not from Charlotte. It, it um, just a quick primer, and and on May twentieth of seventeen seventy five, uh, Colonel Thomas Polk, uh, who was the head of the local militia here in Charlotte, which they called Charlottetown at the time, uh, called a meeting of two representatives from the nine militia in the county to come to the Mecklenburg County Courthouse, which sat at the center of Trade and Trine. It was nothing but a two story log courthouse. Uh, underneath, I think they kept the uh, all the goat, goats yeah. and the cows and that kind of thing. <laughs> and a market, yeah. Uh, yeah, a market. Um, and they came because just a month earlier on April 19th, the British had marched up the road out of uh, Boston and fired on people at Lexington and then continued marching to Concord where the local patriots fired back, which was the shot heard around the world, uh, memorialized in, in a poem. And so that had just happened a month earlier and it kind of filtered down. You know, we didn't have, C, you know, <laughs> CNN, no social media, Fox well, News and all that kind of stuff at the time. You know, trending t- on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. It took a while to get down here. But when it did, you know, we are in the middle at that time of a bunch of Presbyterians. There were Scots-Irish who didn't much care for the authority of the king to begin with, who had fled to come to this part of the world. And yet, have to remember at that time, we're in the backwoods. You know, there are only about 1,100 people that live in the county. So we're, we're back in the middle of nowhere. And, um, we weren't, apparently weren't having much of, uh, King George and all his army firing on our people and wanted to do something about it. And so they met and they debated what to do, which led to, um, what some say was the first American declaration of independence on May 20th. And what others say was nothing more than fabrication (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which which is fascinating because at that time you did have scots irish who weren't like you say not lovers of the king um by any stretch um surrounded by people who were lovers of the king Mm -hmm. for instance in charleston on the coast of north carolina um and this was treason right you know this this could lose your lands and your life and so it's a big deal. Yeah. Okay? And and it's a year before what we know nationally as the Declaration of Independence. So that's pretty fascinating. 
Yeah, and, and there's lots of dispute. I mean, the the, the debate centers uh, around uh, who was going to take control of the narrative for the American Revolution. Was it going to be Virginia and Massachusetts taking all the credit? Surely these backwoodsmen from Mecklenburg County had nothing to do <laughs> with the history, you know, of the Revolutionary War. And so when it came out, you know, years later that this had happened, people from Virginia were upset and Massachusetts too and Philadelphia too. Who are these people? Who do they think they are saying they were first? <laughs> by, and by the way, that thing they, they're talking about, that look at those words there. They look exactly like what Thomas Jefferson put in the Declaration. They just copied from us. And so the real question is, who copied from whom? Copied from whom? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 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 I'm from South Carolina, so we won't go into the whole Fort Moultrie and the British yeah. Army thing, but yeah. Navy things. <laughs> exactly. Um, we needed better PR people back then. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Um, have you got something you'd read for us from the book? Yeah. Thanks. Um, I've got a little section here I'm going to read from the trial. And just to set this up, Craig Travail has been encouraged, pushed, whatever you want to call it, by Harriet and Yeager to file a will caveat case for the granddaughter of the professor. Now, in the opening scene and in the, in the inciting incident, Yeager finds that his best friend, the professor, who's 96 years old, uh, has died. He's found dead uh, in his apartment uh, early in the morning. They were supposed to take a trip together that morning because the professor had something to tell him about the mech deck. But when they find his body, his manuscript on the mech deck is missing and all his history books that relate to the mech deck are gone and his laptop. And the only thing that he finds there is a one page handwritten will where the professor disinherits his grandchild, his only heir and leaves his $50 million fortune to the most despised resident at the Indy Sue Ellen Parker. And so Craig Travail doesn't want to have anything to do with the law, but they push him and he files this will caveat case and he comes up with this theory and Jaeger doesn't like it because Jaeger believes in the mech deck. Harriet says, no, nah, it might work. His theory is that if we can prove that the professor, to, to use the lamest term, he's a little crazy in the head, legal term, he lacked testimonial capacity. He didn't know what he was doing. Didn't know the object of his bounty, et cetera, because he believed in the mech deck. I mean, he'd written this best-selling book called An American Hoax, and now he's writing a book called An American Truth, and the manuscript's missing. Why would a guy change his mind, you know, unless he was crazy? You know, it's not like he found the mech deck. So anyway, Craig Travail calls a witness, an expert. His name is Dr. Uh, Lester Parton, who comes on and Travail walks him through everything. And this is a typical historian who needs all kind of documents to back up the story. He's not going to rely upon oral testimony. He says, no, I agree with the professor. You know, the mech deck is, is, a, is a fantasy. And so Crystal Marks, she's um, at the big law firm Travail used to work for. And uh, actually Travail had trained her. She's very competent. And she's representing Sue Ellen Parker at the behest of uh, Robert Elkin, who's the evildoer in the case. Uh, and uh, he's the managing partner of that firm. And so she's cross-examining him now. We've gotten to a point where uh, there's been a little uh, break and she comes back and she says she's going to shift to questions related to the deceased mental capacity. 
She faced the witness again. Dr. Park, please look at the North Carolina state flag behind you. Does it display any dates? Dr. Parton looked at the flag draped alongside the pole that held it. He stood and took the lower part of the flag in his hand and pulled it away from the pole so everyone could see. The flag bore two dates, one above and one below the letters NC. Dr. Parton explained that April 12, 1776, the date below NC was the date of the Halifax Resolves when North Carolina authorized their delegates to the Continental Congress to sign the Declaration of Independence of 1776. By now, everyone in the courtroom knew the significance of the other date. It was May 20th, 1775, Met Day. Crystal Marks turned to the question Travail had raised, should a man be declared incompetent for believing in the Met Deck? Marks guided Dr. Parton through a series of leading questions. His answers made a good rebuttal to Travail's Met Deck theory. Local patriots believed in the Met Deck. The state legislature believed in it. The Mecklenburg County Commissioners with their county seal believed in it. The May 20th Society believed in it. And even some historians believed in it. What about U.S. presidents? Yes, a number of 20th century politicians came to Charlotte to celebrate an anniversary of the signing of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. President William Howe Taft on May 20th, 1909. President Woodrow Wilson on May 20th, 1916. For celebrations attended by 100,000 people. President Dwight Eisenhower in 1954 for a rally at Freedom Park with 30,000 attendees, and Gerald Ford on May 20th, 1775, when another 100,000 people showed up at Freedom Park, and the headline of the Charlotte Observer that day read, County Declares Independence. <laughs> Crystal Marks focused her last questions on well-known authors and journalists who paid homage to the Mech Deck. Dr. Parton knew the history. There was David McCullough, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who visited Charlotte in 2007 the invitation of the May 20th Society. He said in his speech, all my instincts, all my experience over the years incline me to believe it is true and well worth exploring, worth commemorating and keeping alive. Any others? Yes, George Will, the writer and political commentator, agree with McCullough in an article he wrote in the Washington Post saying, what occurred July 4 in Philadelphia might have been a declaration of independence, but the first such occurred on May 20, 1775. Thus did a settlement on the fringe of the British Empire declare war on that empire. What about Cokie Roberts, the award-winning journalist? Didn't she speak of the dedication of Captain Jack's statue? She did, and she provided the argument we often hear by proponents of the Mech Deck saying, there's not a question in my mind. First of all, there's plenty of evidence, but secondly, when you have folk memory that's that strong, it's always right. And often people don't like that, as in Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, but it turned out to be right. There's just no question in my mind that this is true. Crystal Marks ended her examination on that note. She didn't have to ask Dr. Parton whether a court should judge a man crazy for believing in the mech deck. If all these people believed in it, why couldn't Matthew Collins? Amen. And there's an artistry in how you handle that because that's a lot of what could be dry history to dump on the readers in an entertaining novel, but you put the arguments out there in such a way that we're riding right along with it, nodding our heads and cheering it on as you would like to have. As you said, you can control a courtroom now <laughs> in a yeah. way that you you couldn't necessarily. This reads much better than a trial transcript. So, it, it, yeah. yeah, it does. But I have to say, I, I had a lot of help. I mean, you know, I had beta readers. I had you looking at it. I had 
editor, I had me revising it over and over again. And this is what you hope it gets to. It's not obviously the first thing that comes out. And in fact, one of the early critiques I got uh, about the book, uh, and you might've been in this camp too, which they were all good comments was I was packing too much history into the narrative. And so I had to figure out ways to provide the history, but do it in the context of, uh, you know, what's thrilling at the end of the book. Don't, don't, I had this whole thing. I, I got too deep in the weeds with some of the history in the, in the last act. And, uh, it really, and Hannah, our, our shared publicist, give a shout out to Hannah LaRue of Spellbound Public Relations. She yeah. said, she said, I like it, but you know, you need to cut down on the history. And so I just spread it out. I spread it out, trimmed it up and kind of tried to get at the essence of it. I wish I could say it was on the first draft that that came out that way. But, uh, <laughs> well, we just wouldn't even talk to you then. I mean, well, <laughs> exactly. we want writers who slave over their work. But, but isn't that always the case when we're really passionate about something? I mean, the things that we've soaked up as sponges, we want to drain dry and let everybody else right. know about too. Yeah. Um, and I think that really is the artistry in this book is that you manage to you give us the real stuff, um, both pro and con for the document. Um, and just as we can be comfortable that the courtroom scenes are done well, you in the book itself and in the supporting stuff at the end, give us enough confidence that you know what the heck you're talking about um, with this, that we can feel confident even if we don't know um, those ins and outs when we get there, which to me is the mark of a really good historical um, novel. That's not that's not what this is, but the historical components mm-hmm. of this novel. And I think that's really important um, to make this both readable and fun. Um, yeah. And again, that peek behind the scenes. I, I enjoyed that too. And I, I'm just looking for my next book for that nonfiction book that's already been written with all the research so I can pick up where, <laughs> where, where I left off. But, but Surely but, in all the people <laughs> you've interviewed, there's yet yeah, another. <laughs> there, there. One, of the, one of the things, the techniques I did use, I borrowed from uh, Megan Miranda. She's a, a, I guess, thriller mystery kind of writer. I had her on the show and she's done well. But one of the things she did in one of her books was she dropped in these one pages of uh, whether it was a newspaper article or a transcript. And so that's what I try to do to, to share some of the history. The, the first chapter opens with the letter that John Adams actually wrote to Thomas Jefferson upon his discovery in 1817 of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, as reported in the Essex Register, a, Ra- a Raleigh newspaper at the time. And then about the fourth or fifth chapter, I have you know the actual letter that that Jefferson wrote back to Adams saying that this was an apocryphal gospel and it was spurious. So having that and then dropping in different things along the way, like a letter from somebody or a transcript or, and I won't get too much about something I drop in stuff later, but it's a fun way to provide the history without bogging down the narrative that involves the characters. And that's always, that's always work. Because that's your passion on the page that you have to sort through. But (laughs) you did it. You you had the right folks there. So, yeah. 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 So um, what is the next um, endeavor? Where are you in that? Yes. That's hard because right now this book is still being born in a way. (laughs) You finished writing it, it, but there's a whole bunch of other work. We'll talk about that later. And and we'll just give a little tease out here to what we're going to do next on our Patreon channel. Um, uh, Kathy and I are going to talk about 
all the marketing we did not know. And uh, it's going to be things that we didn't know when we wrote earlier books that were, that I'm learning now. And I wrote a blog post about this. And we're going to talk about some of those um, issues, the things that you learned, the difference in book marketing and book selling. Um, but, you know, I, you're right, Kathy, at this point in time, I'm trying to get not only, I mean, the learning process about this is never ending. Cause I, you know, I don't, I don't have the same memory I had earlier and committing all these names to memory. Like I, I had to jot down, okay, Dr. Ephraim Brevard, he was the the guy who uh, supposedly authored the MEC deck. And then there was a, a lawyer, uh, Reitzel Avery. Apparently he also dueled with Andrew Jackson, but he was there, probably wrote the Mecklenburg Resolves. And then there's John McNitt Alexander. And then there's Thomas Polk. And I'm thinking, okay, now who are the delegates again? Oh yeah, Caswell <laughs> and Hooper and Hughes and I'm going to forget some of this stuff when somebody asks me on a podcast, you know, mm-hmm. some of the history pieces, because, you know, when you put this in, um, I'm not a historian, but uh, I kind of know the the gist of it. Right. So I can talk around it. But ask me a specific name at a specific time, specific date. That might be harder to do. But to your question, um, you know, when we started out with this, I thought that I wanted to find some characters that I would enjoy writing another book about. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed my first series, uh, which was a novella series because there's only about 50,000 words in each book, the Christmas Quarter Trilogy. Um, I really enjoyed moving from one book to the next. Those were all imaginative. I didn't have to research a thing uh, other than what I knew about Santa Claus growing up and what I knew about <laughs> the courtroom. But writing a novel, I learned, it's a lot harder than writing a novella. It's, uh, you know, you got to keep that interest alive in the middle part of, you know, what they call the muddy middle, right? And learning to do that was uh, a learning, which is why probably it was good that I waited three years when I started podcasting to do it, because I learned from other authors about how to do it. And I learned that series are fun. I like a series. And so I'm going to take these characters. The idea is that I'm going to look for mysteries set in and around the Charlotte area. and I'm still going to do this present day versus, you know, the historical day connection. Uh, Mark DeCastric does this to some extent. I'm going to go pick his brain some because he does it in the Asheville area with his characters in the Sam Blackman series. And he pulls some historical bits out of out of the Asheville area. I'm going to try to do that in the Charlotte area. In the area the, the, I don't know if it'll work out, but where I'm focused right now is um, the gold rush of the 1820s yeah. and 30s in Charlotte and the fact that there are still gold mines under the streets of Charlotte. And at one time they said that uh, because they took this iron ore and they would crush it up and then they'd try to get the gold out of it. Um, and then the, the rest of it would, they couldn't pull enough gold out, but they still have flecks of gold in it, but they would use that to pave the streets. And that's why they said the streets of Charlotte were paved with gold. You know, <laughs> just a little known fact, you know, uh, <laughs> But uh, where the Panther Stadium is now is not far from where the Rudisill Mine was. And uh, there are really just, uh, you know, old mines all under the city. And that's gotten me doing some what-ifing here now about what's going to happen. And also a newspaper article I saw about three years ago where a woman's basement collapsed. So I think the inciting incident is going to be some some relative of Harriet or Jaeger's oh. house is going to collapse in the opening scene. And there's probably <laughs> going to be a big hole and it's going to be an old mine shaft. There's going to be some bones down there. Uh, 
historic bones, you know, not recent. But there might be some recent ones too. We haven't figured that out yet. No. But that's the point. <laughs> and I do think that's a fascinating part of Charlotte history. Right. Uh, and one of the neat things about Charlotte is so many of us are incomers, um, even, you know, maybe decades ago. But the growth in Charlotte's phenomenal. And I think um, not enough novels have been set here that give a real flavor of what this place is all about. It's not big, shiny buildings. There was a lot more here before the big, shiny buildings. Yeah. And and you had mentioned earlier that, you know, making Charlotte a character is what I wanted to do. I grew up here um, and I put this in a real location, but I turned the retirement home into a fictitious retirement home. If anybody's listening. <laughs> but, but, but the Hezekiah Alexander house is located at the Charlotte Museum of History here in Charlotte. Uh, and it's the oldest home in Mecklenburg County. And one of the signers of the Mech Deck uh, lived there. It was uh, completed in 1774. Well, right next to it is a retirement community called Aldersgate. Uh, my retirement community is called the Independence Retirement Community. Totally different. We have two lakes, not one. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> Completely different. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, um, the uptown in the book is Uptown Charlotte. It's uh, We take people on the Liberty Walk. We take them to Green's Hot Dogs for lunch. Uh, we take them to the courthouse. We take them to see the Captain Jack statue. And for me, that's fun. I, I enjoy getting into a novel where you can experience a city um, that maybe, you know, you didn't, you didn't know something about your own city or mm-hmm. you've never been there and it's an interesting place. So I, I enjoyed, um, enjoyed doing that. Yeah. Ruth Muth told me that there was a bus tour of a book club that was visiting sites in her murder mysteries. Oh, wow. <laughs> up, up in central North Carolina. And she goes, well, that's not really where that was, but <laughs> But see, we could really take that bus tour here with your book yeah. because that, that those places yeah. are there. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to write four or five more books to, to qualify for a for a tour though. You know? <laughs> I don't know. You had a lot you had a lot in that book. <laughs> that's true. I, we, this, we, this <laughs> Deadly Declarations already has a lot in it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Too bad we can't go in the gold mines, but okay, that's okay. Yeah. Well, you never know. We might be able to, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, p- part of what was churning my interest here is that at one time somebody tried to turn some part of those shafts into a tourist attraction, but it didn't work out financially. Oh, so, wow. I didn't so I'm know thinking that. that might be something that might sneak into my novel. You know, That's that, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, so, I'm fascinated by I'm fascinated yeah. there. Well, Lancaster, yeah. where I lived for a while, still has an operating gold mine. Yeah, yeah. And um, this open pit now is kind of a mess. But um, yeah. the, the history is fascinating. Yeah. So. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for uh, asking these great questions and also supporting me through this this novel. And, uh, you know, we're going to jump over now and talk more about marketing. But again, th- thanks for being my host today and not making it this too hard on me. Great fun. Oh, darn. I wanted it to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was. They were great questions. You know, I just did a little sidestep every now and then if I need to. You know. <laughs> Guys, thank you, Landis. This, it's a great read. Uh, you, the folks who um, haven't had a chance to see the cover, you need to log on and look at the cover. Um, and when this book comes out, uh, be ready for it. It's loads of fun. Yeah, thanks. And the cover's uh, uploaded at landisway.com and information about the book. Will pre-order, all the pre-order information is there too. So check it out. Looking forward to it. Thanks to all my reviewers and my advanced readers and all the supporters and everything. I really 
appreciate it. It's going to be fun because it's coming out right before Mac Deck Day. So yeah. we'll, we'll have fun with it. <laughs> what an accident. What a what, fortuitous accident. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk more about that in our blog discussion here in just a moment on, 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 uh, on Patreon. But uh, all right, we'll, we'll sign off. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.